Well, last time we uh, made the point that when it comes to our faith and what we do as Christians, uh, it is just as important that we live the Christian life as why we do it. Motivation is important. We are instructed in God's Word not only to honor God with our lips and our living, but to do so from our hearts. In the middle of his teaching on salvation, the Apostle Paul pauses, in a sense, to address the matter of service, that is, of obedience. And from last time, Paul calls for obedience by teaching what what really happens in conversion. When someone comes to faith in Christ, the full truth is that they have been brought to faith in Christ. No one just believes and is saved on their own. There is a clear sense in the teaching of God's word that sinners are saved and therefore they believe. The call of the gospel is believe and you will be saved. But the fuller revelation of salvation is that if you believe, it means that you have been saved. It cannot be denied, and and we would contradict God's own word, uh, if we deny the requirement of faith. You must believe if you are to be saved. This is what is taught in our current confessional material for this month. Uh, The question in answer 85 says, What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and, and curse due to us for sin? Answer, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, along with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. God requires faith. But the next question clarifies what is faith in Jesus Christ, and it answers, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. In other words, and and this is no exaggeration, God requires faith unto salvation, but he also gives faith unto salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, meaning what God requires, he also gives. That's what grace is, and that's the gospel. It's a teaching of Scripture and a conviction of the Reformed faith that is likely to draw the scorn of of some even within the evangelical church. The liberal church uh, just says, um, whatever, Uh, we're not interested in your doctrinal precision, even though this is what God's word precisely teaches. But much of even the evangelical church will say, well, if that's true, then God is not being fair. Because it is evidently true that if God gives faith, while not all believe, then he must give faith to some, to his elect, and not to all. We cannot escape this truth. 
this teaching of God's word, that faith is the gift of God given by the new birth accomplished by Christ. And that if not all believe, then it's because God does not save all. He could have, but he didn't. He saves those whom he has chosen to save no more and no less. And he saves them by giving Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection to produce saving faith in the otherwise dead heart of a sinner bound for hell. This is Paul's argument in the first half of Romans 6. The point of the argument is to provide the firm ground for obedience in the Christian life. We, we make a right distinction between salvation and obedience. Salvation is by grace. But because salvation is by grace, obedience is also by grace and is important in the, in the Christian life. Uh, do you not understand what has happened to you? Asked Paul. Do you not understand what your baptism meant? Your baptism didn't save you. Instead, it gave you a, a picture of what happened to you to bring you to faith. You came to faith. There's no doubt about that. Faith is, is a decision that a sinner makes in order to be saved by faith. But when you came to faith, when you made your decision for Christ, it happened by the saving grace of God whereby you received and rested upon Christ alone for your salvation. And since that's the case, why in the world, why in the whole wide world would you go right on sinning without a care, without grief, without sorrow for your sin? You have died and have risen with Christ. There is new life in you. The sure evidence being your own personal faith in Jesus Christ. You and I wouldn't be believers except that Jesus was born, lived, suffered and died and rose again from the dead so that in the end he breathed on us. He applied his work to us by sending forth his breath, his, his spirit to give us new life unto repentance and saving faith. But that's only the first argument and support that Paul has for obedience in the Christian life. Why obey? It's, it's, it's a crucial question. Again, it's just as important why you obey as that you obey. The second half of Romans 6 speaks to freedom and slavery as the reason for obedience. And to benefit the most from this argument, starting in, in verse 15, we first need to understand that you and I have an unavoidable choice. Uh, are you ready for this? Right between the eyes, if, if we will hear it. The, the first point is an unavoidable choice. Verse 15, in verse 15, Paul repeats his question. In, in verse 1, he asks, uh, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? His answer, by no means, absolutely not. 
A good illustration is Lazarus in John 11. Imagine Lazarus dead for four days, then raised from the dead. Imagine that Lazarus turned around and walked back into the tomb and, and laid down again. That's what sin is in the Christian life. We have died and have risen with Christ. Christ has raised us. Our faith, is, is, our, our faith itself is the proof. So why go on sinning? What a, what a foolish thing to do. So don't do that, teaches Paul. Reason number one, to obey. But now in verse 15, he asks again, really the same question. I think we can hear it. What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And his answer again is, by no means, absolutely not. And here's the second reason for obedience in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? So think about this, along with the Apostle Paul. The the truth is that no matter what you do, you you are obeying someone. And if you are obeying someone one person or another, then you are a slave. Here's the logic, not not just of the Christian life, but of all life lived in this world. No matter what you do, you are a slave. Think of a a child out in the neighborhood with, uh, with two other friends. One friend tells him, Go over there and and break that window with this rock. The other friend tells him not to do it. Don't go over there and break that window with the rock. At that point, either way, the child must obey one command or the other. The child can say, oh, I am my own person. I will do my own thing. I will obey no one. I I will serve as my own master. But once he has received the call to break the window and the call not to break the window, he is stuck. Either he will obey one and not the other, or the other and not the first. This is where we are in life. And we might say, I, I, don't, I don't like that. That's not where I want to be. Sorry, can't help you. Uh, we are creatures. We, we are made in the image of God and called upon to obey God. But since the fall, we are also owned by and subject to Satan, who tells us not to obey God. You only have two choices, and it's unavoidable. It's pure myth that we can be independent, unaffiliated, purely self-governed. Do what you want, but whatever you do, you are obeying someone. This is the teaching of God's word. As Paul writes in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. If you think about it, it's it's a terribly obvious point. 
sorry to insult your intelligence, but whoever you obey is your master. It's an unavoidable choice because we are creatures living under the power and ownership of two possible rulers, either with Christ as our ruler or still with the evil one as our master. Back to Genesis, even to Genesis 3, to understand what really happened there. Adam and Eve, our first parents, ate a piece of fruit from from the tree forbidden by God, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it, it wasn't a whoops. It was an act of rebellion. It was a deed by which they brought themselves and all of us under the authority, the power, even the ownership and mastery of the evil one. And so our Lord Jesus was even willing to identify Satan as the ruler of this world. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, uh, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Was, was Satan grandstanding, as we say? Was Satan claiming uh, something that wasn't his to give? Was he selling oceanfront property in Indiana? No, when Jesus answered, he didn't say, oh, that's not true. Uh, what, was Satan claiming something that wasn't his? Jesus didn't say the, the kingdoms of the world and their glory are not yours to give. Instead, Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan is the ruler of this world. And you and I must understand that he is our ruler unless we have been redeemed by Christ. It is my conviction that one of the most neglected and abused uh, doctrines of Scripture is the doctrine of Satan, if we can say that, uh, what the Bible teaches about the spiritual being who is behind all the evil of this world. Our secular culture wants to claim that um, we just haven't evolved enough, so we just need to stick it out and tough it out until... Some future generation gets to benefit from the evolution of humanity beyond sin and evil. But God's word teaches that there is an evil one. Satan is real. And he is bent on our destruction, even our eternal suffering with him in hell. And that's exactly the case, that that he knows he is defeated. He knows that he is going to hell. And being the ultimate sore loser, he is intent on dragging down to hell as many as possible with him. So the second point is slavery to sin, which we've already begun. We we all face an unavoidable choice. We are slaves to sin, or we are redeemed by Christ and slaves to Christ. 
and we'll get to being slaves to Christ in the third point, but in between, we need to, we need to dwell more here on this point of being slaves to sin. And let's start by remembering that this was the direct teaching of our Lord. In, in John 8, uh, verse 34, it records that Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, that's what Jesus said when, when he uh, was uh, ready to teach something very important and not necessarily more important than his other teachings, but more important because it's a teaching that sinners especially want to refuse and deny. You need to hear this, said Jesus. You need to understand that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Here is what was said before, that that when we sin, we we are not just rebelling against God, we are showing and proving our affiliation with the evil one. We can claim our independence. We can say no to God and, and his authority and refuse to believe that there is such a thing as, as Satan. But all we are doing is saying yes to the command of Satan. Whenever we sin, and especially when we say no to the gospel, this is what sin is. Sin is slavery. And our sin, our, our actual sin, as we say theologically, the things we do wrong uh, or fail to do right, our sin is, is not what brings us into slavery, but what proves that we are enslaved. From the beginning, from conception and birth, by being human, we are enslaved to sin. And everything from our misdoings to our flagrant fouls to our failures to do, even to our very death. It all testifies to the fact that we are enslaved to sin. I said earlier that Satan is intent upon taking with him into hell as many as he can. But the point is not that he has to you know, pick them off like an enemy sniper. All he has to do is Keep, to keep them in his possession to keep them, is to keep them from believing in Christ. That the redemption of Christ, that by the redemption of Christ, they might belong to Christ rather than to him. In other words, sinners already belong to him. He doesn't have to pick them off. They already belong to him. That's, that's what he accomplished in the garden by the fall of man into sin by the sin of Adam and Eve, Satan became the owner. He became the ruler. He became the master of all the offspring of our first parents, including us. So long as we remain apart from Christ and his redemption. The first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't use the word redemption, but we're not interested so much in a theological word, redemption, as we are in the meaning of it and the result of it. What is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own. Can we hear it? I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And I always stop and and think at at this point, 
how do, how do I really feel about that? Uh, that? That I do not belong to myself, that I am not the, uh, as, uh, as the poet William Ernest Henley said, that I am not the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. Is it good news that I am owned by Christ? And how is that a comfort when I would far more prefer to be independent and unaffiliated? Well, first, we must know that, that we have become so. We, uh, 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 we do belong to Christ because he has fully paid for all my sin with his precious blood. That's not just the Heidelberg. That's the, the holy word of God. He has fully paid for my sin with his precious blood. But second, we must know that by belonging to Christ, by his redemption, We no longer belong to the evil one. He has fully paid for my sin with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. One great strength of the the Heidelberg is that from the beginning, it involves the devil in, in the teaching of God's plan of salvation because, yes, we are we are saved from the misdoings of our sin, and yes, we are saved even from death and the grave. But the full truth is, is that apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We belong to our father, the devil, John chapter 8. We don't sin because we are somewhere in the middle, sometimes on God's side and sometimes on the side of Satan. We don't become slaves to sin when we sin. We sin because we are slaves to the evil one. We are born into slavery and even unto death and hell. Which brings us, thankfully, joyfully to the next point slavery to righteousness does it startle us to hear of being slaves to righteousness or slaves of god or slaves of christ jesus it shouldn't the great apostles themselves paul in particular referred to himself as a a slave of christ jesus and think of the think of the prodigal son in 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 the parable Uh, He took his inheritance and he went off and he spent it on drink and and prostitutes. In in other words, he threw off his father as a master and he went and tried to be his own master. Only to find out that he was still a slave. But now to a master who left him to eat with the pigs that he was feeding. And when he came to his senses... He went back to his father, not expecting to be treated as a son, knowing that he had no claim on that identity. Instead, he came back asking only to be a slave. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The truth is that it it takes both sons in the parable of the prodigal son, uh, to describe us. We can perhaps uh, most easily identify with the prodigal son, the one who took advantage of what his father had for him, 
the one who threw off his father's authority and mastery and went and lived in sin until it became clear that he was not free, only under the mastery of another. We too have sinned. We too live a life that God has given us. We stand upon God's land. We breathe God's air. We eat God's food. We drink the drink of blessing, even as our cup overflows. But we rebel and go off trying to live as masters unto ourselves until it becomes evident that we are not masters unto ourselves. We are not free. We are slaves to sin. But even as we come back to God, we are like the elder son who said, Father, look, all these many years I have served you and, and, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. In other words, we think we are entitled to what we are given. We, we think we earn it. We, we forget that we are slaves. In the beginning, God created man and, and, and he took man and, and put him in the garden to work it. That's a picture of slavery. We were created to work for God. Take it or leave it, it's the teaching of God's word. God took the man and put him in the garden to work it. But if we would leave it, take it or leave it, but if we would leave it, if we would try to free ourselves from being slaves to God, then we only become slaves to another, to the evil one who opposes God and who has enslaved us to do the same. Now, someone is is sure to say, uh, wait a second, the word slave or slavery is referring to being a a servant, even a bond servant. And it's a good point. It's a, it's a point of clarification. It's certainly not the case that God is oppressive. When God puts man to work, he does not do so to man's harm and to man's demise. And a bond servant is one who agrees to work one who loves his master and desires to serve. A bondservant is one who makes a covenant with his master in order to serve and to be blessed in his, in, in his employment. And this is where we are as, as we are saved, as we are redeemed, as we are purchased by the blood of Christ in order to belong to him rather than to the evil one. I don't know if you've uh, ever had a, a really bad job with, uh, with a really bad boss and, and uh, with really bad working conditions uh, and then found a new job where people are nice to you, where people appreciate you, where you can, you can work hard and, and thrive and, and prosper. It's not the perfect illustration, but, but that experience, if, you, if you've had it, at least begins to show what it means to go from being a slave to sin to being a slave to righteousness. The devil will try to confuse us. Uh, Satan will flat out lie to us. 
From the beginning, he said, you will not surely die. God is only keeping you from what you might gain if you rebel against him. But if you haven't already, it's time to switch jobs. It's time to quit working for the devil and to start working for Christ. Jesus even said, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And, and how is that not a contradiction? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Well, it's not a contradiction because you are that you were created to work for one master or another. You can't avoid it. But when you work for Christ, when you serve him, it's because his work is for you. But I don't want to work for him or for anybody, someone might say. But then you are still of the devil and you are working out his will and doing what he desires. So finally, freedom in Christ. Does freedom in Christ mean that, uh, that he is not our master? By no means, says Paul. Absolutely not. But if Christ is not your master, then Satan still is. So go with Christ and go the distance with Christ. Serve Christ as your master because he is your freedom. It's, it's not freedom to be your own master because that's exactly what Satan wants you to do. You are only serving Satan by thinking to be your own master. But the freedom that we have in Christ is, first of all, freedom from condemnation. In Romans 8, verse 1, Paul writes and proclaims, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here in Romans 6, he speaks of being slaves of righteousness, which doesn't mean that righteousness is cracking a whip against our back or that God is threatening us to be better. No, to be a slave of righteousness. Does this even need to be said again? <laughs> By this point in Romans, to be a slave of righteousness is to receive righteousness, to know that you are righteous by your faith in Christ, and then to respond in obedience, exhibiting, seeking to exhibit the righteousness of Christ that is yours by faith. Second, to be free in Christ means that you can face temptation and say no. For crying out loud, why do what Satan and the flesh are telling you to do? You have a new master. His name is Jesus Christ. New life is pulsing through your veins. If it weren't, then you wouldn't be a believer in Jesus Christ. But as you are a believer in Christ, then it's because you have died and have risen with Christ. Again, your faith itself being the evidence. And if you have died and risen with Christ, then you are free, free to live a life of service to Christ, striving, failing, falling, and advancing. Psalm 84, Selection B says, 
advancing still from strength to strength, they go where other pilgrims trod. We're all in this together. We go where other pilgrims have trod before us till each to Zion comes at length and stands before the face of God. Third, to be free in Christ means that you are not a slave in the worldly sense. The humility of faith says, Lord Jesus, let me be only a slave. Let me be a a foot servant in heaven just so long as I am there with you. I will wash the smelly feet of every pilgrim believer arriving in heaven just so long as I am there and not in hell where I deserve to be. But the father of the prodigal son would hear, would not listen to that, would not, would not hear any of that. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer am worthy to be called your son. His father would have none of it. He said, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, uh, uh, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son... He was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he's found. My son has returned. To be free in Christ is to count ourselves as slaves, but to do so knowing that God counts us as his children in Christ. Humility is for us. Anything more is from God and by his grace as he takes us as his own, even as his own children, and for our salvation. Really, all you have to do is, is to think of a child in a well-ordered home. Maybe you didn't have this advantage in this living illustration, but at least you can imagine it. When, when parents love their children, what happens? Their children are provided for, their children prosper, their children grow and, and learn and are blessed. And, and, and then what happens? The child rebels. The child takes advantage of the years of blessing that he or she has enjoyed. And then what happens? The, the child is disciplined. Is the child free in the home to break the windows, to soil the carpet, to destroy the house he lives in? Is the child free to beat up on his brothers and sisters? No. So is the child free? Yes, but not to be a brat or a bore or a brute. So are, And so are we in the house of God. We... So are we, as children of God, we are free to serve and honor Christ. And as Joshua said, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served beyond the river, river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you don't want to serve anyone, you're out of luck. The option is not before you. So believe in Christ and serve him 
Obey and honor Him because He is the one who pours out blessing upon you. He is the one who is worthy to be served and obeyed. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. And yes, He is your Master. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we confess you as our Savior, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has bought us back from the evil one, from sin, from death, and from hell itself. You have bought us, and we belong to you, and you are our Master. Help us to delight in that relationship. Fill us with joy and with gratitude that we no longer belong under the tyranny of the devil, but that you have redeemed us, you have saved us. We belong to you and you call us to live for you each and every day. Give us this faith and none other We ask in your name, Lord Jesus, amen.